Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. We continue our study in Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1, and uh, we're looking at verses 16 to 17 today, but let's begin at uh, verse 8 and read from there. I think it'll give us some of the context. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? And Paul writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because, of, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Lord, open our eyes to the truth of your word. And the spectacular majesty of your great work through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And now a response. I don't need the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't meet any of the needs that I care about or that seem relevant to the things that I value in life. It doesn't promise me health doesn't promise me wealth, doesn't promise me happiness. I don't want the gospel of Jesus because it, it does nothing to make me feel better about myself. It's not therapeutic. It doesn't wrap me up in a warm blanket and tell me that I'm okay just the way I am. I resent the gospel of Jesus for one thing, it invades my space. It, it questions my motives. It tells me who I'm supposed to be, the nerve. It confronts me for the things that I do. It tells me that I'm, I'm wrong, that I'm the bad guy, that I deserve to be punished. Me, really? I reject the gospel of Jesus because after all, this is my life. <laughs> These are my dreams. 
And I'm not going to let anyone or anything stand in the way of them. I'll step over anyone who stands in my way. I'll break the hearts of those who don't utterly swear allegiance to me or cater to my appetites. What's more, I'll cancel, I'll abort anyone who impedes the pursuit of my life and my liberty and my happiness. Furthermore, what could be more ridiculous than to suggest that my biggest problem is with a God who I've never met, a God who claims that I've done him wrong? <laughs> it tells me that the only way to be made right with him is to believe that he sent his son to be born as a human baby, live a perfect life, and be sacrificed in an unjust execution and then he came back to life in three days. That's ludicrous. You gotta be an absolute moron, an uninformed and uneducated fool for thinking that I would buy something like that, that I would believe something like that. In fact, you should be ashamed of yourself for believing something as stupid as that yourself. And the writer of Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed. Pastor once pointed out, no one says that they're not ashamed without acknowledging that there is a very real likelihood or temptation of being ashamed. Did the Apostle Paul have any reason for being ashamed? I was a pretty shy kid growing up. I think it had something to do with the fact that I wore these really thick glasses it wasn't very athletic, wasn't very coordinated, kind of heavy set, wasn't quick-witted, wasn't funny like the, the rest of the kids. I felt out of place. Maybe that came from the fact that I was a, the firstborn of a really big family or that my brothers and I were homeschooled, something that very, wasn't very popular back then, or, or, or because we drove around in this big 15-passenger van, and every morning on, on the way to school, when I was in high school, went to public high school, put that thing in reverse, you know what happens? Beep, beep, beep. The whole neighborhood knew. Get picked up after, after school, freshman year, I opened the side door of the van, and diaper bags and bottles are falling out, and my friends are laughing. I didn't have a lot of confidence. You know, this guy, Apostle Paul, he didn't have much going for him either, at least not in the way of appearance. There seems to be a general consensus. This guy was not much to look at. <laughs> kind of ugly, short, bald, bushy eyebrows, big hook nose bad eyesight. Who's going to pay attention to a guy like that? You know, it's, it's the strong, it's the striking, the well-spoken that people seem to listen to. Guys with Paul's deck of cards, well, they just usually kind of fade into the, the background, into the crowd, maybe even hide in, in shame. Yeah, sometimes it's, uh, it's who we are that we're ashamed of. Or maybe our connections, or our families, or our social status, or our blue-collar jobs, or, or the worn-out clothing, or the, the old cars that we drive around, or just the personal deficiencies, a lack of intelligence, or unattractive appearance. Maybe it's our track record, you name it. Other times, it's 
Shame comes from, from experience that we've had. When I was first year of high school, I did everything I could, everything that I could to fly under the radar in those classes. I was homeschooled going to freshman year of high school. I looked like a weirdo and I wanted to avoid at all costs any attention being drawn to myself in class. I didn't want the teacher to call on me because I didn't want to open my mouth and say something really dumb in front of all these other kids that seemed so much cooler than me. And one of the reasons? Well, it had happened before. <laughs> I don't like shame. I don't want to be connected with anything that is shameful, especially public shame. You know, Paul had no shortage of experiences that should have brought shame. In Philippi, he had done time in prison. Thessalonica, driven out of town, actually had to be smuggled out of Damascus and Berea, was a laughing stock up on the hill in Athens, a fool in Corinth, nearly put to death in Jerusalem for supposedly desecrating the temple, preaching against the Jewish law, blaspheming God. Not only that, this thing called Christianity, getting all kinds of bad publicity, bad reaction among the pagan world as people started slapping labels on it. Labels like atheism. Because these Christians, they don't, they don't worship all of our, our gods. They, they worship this one God. Labels like cannibalism. Well, you know what they do? They get together and they, they drink the blood and, and eat the body of, of this man in their routine rituals. Boy, with all that, who wouldn't want to lay low and fly under the radar? I certainly wouldn't blame them. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking that this whole news of God sending his son, becoming this little baby to take away the sins of the world is just a little out of touch or insane, I wouldn't blame you either. Not one bit. You know, these days, most people have other things on their minds, other things that they care about, far more than whether or not they're standing, they're in good standing with this God that they've never seen, never met. A study by the Pew Research Center done a little while ago said that Americans care about these things, things like affordability of health care. Yeah, we care about that. We care about inflation, don't we? When we go to a grocery store, I was going to buy mustard the other day. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I can't buy this yellow stuff. We care about things like the border crisis. That's a hot topic right now. Drug addiction, gun violence, crime, budget deficit. So why should Christians, why should Christians feel emboldened to share a message that seemingly no one wants to hear, that sounds kind of ridiculous, that may very well leave them labeled out of touch, Odd, maybe even an enemy of those who are on this side of history. Last week we read, Paul is eager to preach this gospel. Eager to preach this gospel. Are you eager to preach this gospel? Why is he eager? Well, for one, he believed he had an obligation to it. We talked about that last, last week. This good news of the gospel that was received by him it was something that he held very precious. Not only did he hold it precious, it had a prolific impact on his life. In a sense, he looked at himself as a bearer of 
this gospel, a keeper of the gospel flame. In his mind, that meant that he, he couldn't just keep it to himself because everybody needs this stuff. And so he has to share it. He has an obligation to get it out there. But you know, it's one thing to have an obligation, isn't it? And it's something entirely different to be excited and eager to do that very thing. Sometimes we dread the things that we're obligated to do. <laughs> oh no, you mean to tell me I have to go to her wedding? I have to call that guy? I have to pay those registration fees? You've got to be kidding me. Obligation and eagerness, they don't often go hand in hand. So what makes Paul eager to preach this gospel? Here we have it, 16 and 17. Why shouldn't you be ashamed of this gospel? Have you experienced the temptation to be? And for those of you who you haven't bought into this gospel yet, maybe you're here with us this morning, maybe you're just watching this online, you should be asking yourself, why should I even give a second thought to this so-called good news? I'll tell you why. Because it is the power of God. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. It's dynamite, you might say. It's the, this Greek word that Paul uses here that's the origin for the term that we use for that explosive stuff. This gospel, this good news, is the power to do what otherwise cannot be done. We love power, don't we? I love power. It allows us to transform our world, make it do things that otherwise it wouldn't do. It's what turns dark rooms into daylight. It's what moves massive rocks and mountains and diverts rivers so that we can build homes and stadiums and hospitals and highways. It's what allows us to sit back and be entertained or develop medicines to heal these failing bodies of ours, or, or produce products that make life easier, that make life, frankly, delicious. <laughs> but for all the power that we have at our disposal, it, we just don't seem to be able to muster the kind of power that we need to eliminate some of our deepest need, to remove the guilt that we feel when we know we've done something wrong. Or to eliminate the selfishness we see out there. We see it all over the place. All this selfishness going on out there. Sometimes we even see it in ourselves. Or to deal with this, this sense of, this eerie sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness that we're left with, even after we've bought everything that we want or experienced everything that we wanted to do. We feel the need to change things, but we can't seem to change what's going on inside of us. God asks in Jeremiah 13 too, he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin color or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. God's saying, no, I don't think so. You can't do it. His word tells us that we've all gone wrong. Not exactly the message we want to hear, but it's there. We've all been corrupted. We've all been cut off from him. We're caught up in this self-defeating trajectory that ends in death. And there's nothing you or I can do to fix it. In fact, when we try, 
We try to remove this guilt. We try to fix this problem that we have inside, or remove the meaninglessness or the hopelessness. And what we end up doing is actually driving ourselves away from the real solution and towards hopelessness. The more we seek to find some type of answers to these problems, we lead each other, we lead ourselves further and further away from the only one who's powerful to fix them. Try to convince yourself that your guilt is really doesn't belong to you, belongs to somebody else, something else, some circumstances out there. Well, you just end up believing something that's very likely not true. Blind yourself to the reality that there actually is a problem here. Try to justify or mainstream the the sinful lifestyle that you love, and you end up just heaping more and more guilt and more and more judgment upon yourself. Try to be good enough and follow enough rules to make yourself right with God. And you're just going to find yourself caught up in this never-ending battle to achieve what you can't achieve. Or you become delusional and think that you actually have achieved it and you walk around with your head held high above, uh, above, above the crowd. Oh, I've made it. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody. Or maybe you just become depressed out of your mind because you realize, I failed again for the millionth, zillionth time. Try to convince yourself that there's hope apart from God and you're going to move further and further away from him and trust in inferior things that in the end offer no lasting hope. But Paul writes that this gospel has power. It's the power of God. It's the power to do what we cannot do ourselves. For while we are still, we're still weak, he writes in Romans 5, 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were weak, God intervened. It's the power that's able to fulfill the requirements of the law that we're powerless to meet. He writes in Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And yes, Paul knows, he knows very well. He is not ignorant to the fact that everyone else out there thinks that this sounds absolutely ridiculous. In fact, he writes in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He knows that to the successful, to the powerful, to the educated, this sounds like nonsense. That doesn't matter, does it? if, in fact, this is true. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified. Well, wow, that sounds ludicrous. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to, the, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, one of the reasons that people in Paul's day thought that this whole idea of an all-powerful God sending his son on a mercy mission to step in and take the place, bear the punishment of people who are condemned, one of the reasons that was so ridiculous to them is because their gods, the God, all these gods that they knew, that they were accustomed to worshiping, nothing like that. Their gods were self-centered. Their gods were 
unconcerned, completely detached from this world? Who in their right mind would think that there's a God out there who would go out of his way to care for puny and pathetic people? You know, the Romans are known for their graffiti. Have you visited Italy? Have you been there? It's amazing. Have you seen this one? Look closely. You'll see a man hanging on a cross with the head of a donkey. And the scribble reads, Alexamenos worships his God. Sound derogatory? So I don't know if you watched this video online of a renowned atheist, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller. He confesses his faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, over the past three years, I opened my heart to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit filled me. And all of a sudden, I realized that everlasting life is possible by following in the ways of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I've since then dedicated my life to Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to share several other convincing things. Leads, him, leads us to believe his faith, boy, it's, it's sincere until he finally just bursts out laughing. And then starts using profanity, essentially to say, gotcha, suckers. <laughs> you thought that I would believe in this nonsense? It's been roughly 2,000 years. I don't think much has changed. This Jesus stuff still seems foolish to a world that's going its own way. But Paul tells the Corinthians, this good news isn't about how smart it sounds. 1 Corinthians 2.1. When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. No. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why did he do that? Why, why not Why not have some good convincing arguments here? Doesn't he want these people to understand the gospel, to actually believe it, to receive it as their own? Come on, Paul, what's the big deal? 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. This isn't about human wisdom. Can't find it through human wisdom. It's about God's power. And who is this God? Excuse me? He's the one who said in Jeremiah 27.5, it is I who by my great power my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. He's the one the psalmist wrote about. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. If this is the God we're talking about here, and it's in his power, it's his power that's behind this good news, enabling it to do what it's supposed to do. If that's the case, it doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter how many people think it's funny. It doesn't matter what kind of shame they try to shovel on top of this. It's going to accomplish what God says it's going to accomplish. And what is it exactly that it accomplishes? 
Why should we not be ashamed of this? Because it produces salvation. It does what nothing else can. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And when it does that, it makes known to everyone how powerful this God truly is. Psalm 106, eight says, he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. That word salvation, verse 16, soteria. Might be pronouncing it wrong, I don't know. But it means deliverance. It means rescue. What do we need rescue from? What do we need deliverance from? All you have to do is look at verse 18. That's next week, by the way. You can cheat a little bit. You know what you find there? You find that we need to be rescued from God's wrath. And someone says, wait, you got to be putting me on here. You got to be putting me on. So God needs to rescue us from himself. No way. It's ridiculous. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Exactly what we're talking about. Let me explain. A perfect God is perfect in everything. Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. If the word of the Lord proves true, you know what that means? Well, that means what he says is true. And that means what he says is right and what he says is wrong actually is right and actually is wrong. And when he commands his creation, commands that his creation love him or obey him so that they might enjoy him, well, that's just how it is. And it means that what is wrong is truly wrong. Not wrong as if it's like less than ideal or, or less than best, but wrong like it's actually wrong and should be looked at and treated as wrong. In fact, it should be met with anger and judgment wrong. And that's exactly what happens when the perfect, unchanging, holy God is rebelled against. That rebellion, it has to be responded to with wrath. Why? Because his word proves true. Ephesians 2, 3 tells us we we're children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Bible is very clear. This is the position that every one of us finds ourselves in. Powerless to escape God's wrath. Powerless to subdue or appease God's wrath. And someone might be thinking, well, that makes God sound kind of mean. I mean, what kind of a God creates people, gives them the ability to turn against him, and then punishes them for crossing him? I hear that. I see that point. That makes a lot of sense. That's a good question. But the reality is that in burning against our sin, God actually reveals himself to be perfect. Perfect. In all of his ways. 
He reveals himself to be a just judge. You know, an unjust judge might overlook uh, some type of wrong, and we would look at that judge, and, and we might applaud that judge, and we might say, that judge is showing mercy. He doesn't need to show mercy, but he's showing mercy by not punishing that offense. But you know what that judge is also doing? Sacrificing justice. Showing mercy at the expense of justice. God doesn't do that. He wouldn't be perfect if he did do that. You might say, well, that's really, really nice of him. It makes him sound like a good guy. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But you know what? He's not God if he does that. He's not perfect in all his ways. His words don't prove true. No, they don't. He's perfectly just. And so to simply overlook a wrong would make him less than who he is. And that puts us Honestly, that puts us, if God is God and he is perfect in all of his ways and his words do prove true, well, that puts us in a rather difficult predicament here. Not a very good situation here. In fact, we're hopelessly sentenced to face the full force of God's wrath. Do we need to be delivered or what? Do we need rescue? You better believe that we do. And there you have the salvation that Paul's talking about here. It's the escape from the punishment that you and I rightly deserve. I don't know how that hits you, but that hits me hard. This is why Paul's not ashamed of it. How can you be ashamed of the only way of escape from the most terrible, the most permanent, the most unavoidable of problems? How can you be ashamed of that? And not only is it the answer but it's the solution to everyone's problems. It's not just my problem. It's your problem. And those people out there, it's everyone's problem. That poster that I have on my wall up in my office that says lost, that's all of us. And the salvation that Paul's talking about here, he says it's for everybody. Doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your skin color is, what culture you come from, what nationality you are. No, everybody needs it, but it's available for everyone. He writes to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Of course it came to the Jew first. Some say, well, well why did the Jews get this special? Well, it just, it's just the way it goes because it was through the Jews that Jesus, that, that God decided to bring Jesus, the Savior, into the world. Doesn't mean that they don't need him as much as everyone else just means that they were the first to hear it. And yes, they did hear it first. This is the shameless gospel. The shameless gospel. Why? Because one, it's the power of God. Two, because it produces salvation. Finally, three, because it reveals the righteousness of God. Verse 17 says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what is what's Okay, what are we talking about here when we say the righteousness of God is revealed in this, 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 this gospel here? With three main possibilities. Let me serve them up to you. The first is that the righteousness of God should be thought of as an attribute of God. God is righteous. Psalm 11.7 says that. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Okay, great. Ezra 9.15 our Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. 
Isaiah 45, this is really interesting, 45, 21. Declare and present your case. This is God talking. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me. A righteous God and a Savior. There's none beside me. Turn to me and be saved. By the way, if you're here today and have not turned to him, this is for you. This is God's, this is God's I want to say eternal, but this call is out there for as long as this earth is out here. It's going to end at some point, and he's going to say, okay, you had your chance, and now we're moving on to eternity. But for right now, the call is, turn to me and be saved. Yes, this just judge, the one you're looking at and you're saying, eh, he seems kind of mean. No, no, no. Yes, he's perfectly just. Oh, yeah. Do you believe his full justice? Yes. Do you deserve his full justice? Yes, you do. But guess what? Salvation belongs to you. Turn to me and be saved, he said. All the ends of the earth. Everybody. There isn't a single person out there. The ugliest, most disgusting, sinful person out there. I want them. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Do you see what's going on here? The reality that God is righteous is being linked to this idea that he is savior. Yes. His justice, it's, it's displayed loud and clear by the fact that he holds people accountable for their disobedience against him. But his righteousness, his rightness, his goodness it's, it's just like put up on a huge screen, like over at, at uh, Angel Stadium for all to see. Look, this is who I am. This is, this is who I am. I'm righteous. And that's seen when his power opens this door up for guilty people to be saved. That's the first way we could look at what Paul's saying here. It's his character righteousness that we're seeing as he brings about salvation. Second way, Second way to look at this is, is as an activity of God. We could say that this thing that God has done is sending his son to be the sacrificial savior of the world. Well, that is his righteousness in action. This is righteous. This is what God is doing here. We look at his justice and we go, and we look at his salvation and we go, righteous. You are this, what you're doing right here, right now. Jesus Christ hanging on that. This is righteous. Raising from the dead, opening the door. for This is righteous. This is amazing. Psalm 82 too. It's uh, one of the many places in the Bible where God's act of salvation and God's righteousness, they're, they're, they're run in parallel here. They're actually equated with one another. It says this, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed, what? His righteousness in the sight of the nations. Again, in Isaiah, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And basically the same thing, my salvation will not delay. This is, this is the way, this is the Hebrew um, way of, of writing here. It's, it's parallelism. I put my salva salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. One commentator writes this. He says, salvation is the form that God's righteousness takes. So when God acts to save, he's doing righteousness. The very activity is righteous. And Paul could be telling us that. Third way. 
Third way is to look at it in that righteousness is what God is actually producing in us as he saves us. It could be that Paul is trying to get across that in saving sinful people, God is actually gifting his righteousness that belongs to him and him alone. We're, we're not righteous, right? But he's gifting it. To, he's, technical word, imputing it, infusing it, covering over the sins of guilty people with it. Before we're saved, we're not righteous. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He didn't have it before. No, he wasn't righteous before. For all his rule following, for all his tradition keeping that he did before he came to depend on Jesus, wasn't righteous, he's saying. And it's the same way for you and me. Same way for us. No amount of trying to be a nice person. I try hard and I fail a lot <laughs> being a nice person. You get to know me a little bit and you're like, this guy isn't nice. <laughs> no amount of taking the sacraments. No amount of going to church, giving to charity, praying, praying the rosary, recycling, <laughs> celebrating and affirming people that are, that are different than me. Or anything else that people try to do to, to remove their guilt or convince themselves and others that I, I'm a moral person, none of that will make you a righteous person. No, Isaiah 64 tells us we, we become, we've all become like one who's unclean. All our, all our righteous deeds, they're like a polluted garment. Have you ever had a polluted garment? If you've had a baby, you know what a polluted garment is. It's not great. That's what your righteous deeds are like. And we, we all fade like a leaf, it says. I got leaves falling over, all over my backyard, all over the pool, turning it green. It's not good. It says our iniquities, that's our sin. It's like the wind, they're taking us away. No, for Paul and for us, the only righteousness that we could ever hope to have is the righteousness that God gifts us as we look to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. This is called this in, in seminary, double imputation. If Im, Im, to impute is to impart, our sin is going on him, onto the cross as he's there. You know what's coming our way? His righteousness. That means that in Jesus, you and I not only are gifted righteousness, we actually become the righteousness of God. What has happened to us and in us 
is actually a form of God's righteousness. So I got to ask this. Do you know Jesus here? Do you know Jesus? Is your faith in him and your new life completely dependent upon him? Okay. If so, you are now a living, breathing example of the righteousness of God. How awesome is that? Put that one down in your journal to pull out on one of those rainy days, one of those days where you're feeling down in the dumps and feeling not very good about yourself. If your faith is in Jesus, you are now the righteousness of God. It could very well be that when Paul says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, he's talking about this gift of righteousness that you and I have been given. Okay, which one is it? Here's the thing. Just as it could be that, God is, that, that Paul's talking about this righteousness as an attribute or an action or a gift, it's also very possible he has all three in mind. Certainly all three are true. All three absolutely take place at the same time. Let me ask you this. Where's the shame in that? This isn't shameful. This is incredible. Through this powerful salvation, God's righteousness is displayed. It's also in action, and it's also being imparted. And then Paul writes that it's revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From faith for faith, this sounds very technical. What does this mean? Well, it means that this salvation, this deliverance, this righteousness is what comes about, not because we worked hard for it or because we earned it in some way, but because we looked to and depended on Jesus as the Savior for it. It comes through faith. As you trust in him, he does all the work. All we're doing is going, yeah, that's what I need. And at the same time, it's also for faith in that this salvation, this righteousness, it's not just a box for us to check here. It's not just so we get this ticket. I got my ticket to heaven. I'm good now. No. It's so that we might now live in a new way that we might actually walk now in a newness of life, that we might now live by faith, trusting in Jesus, living in a way that pleases him, that displays this incredible work that he has accomplished within us and reflects our new standing as God's rescued ones, his transforming ones. Yes, the righteous shall live by faith. And they can live by faith because of the righteousness that God has produced in them through faith. Duh. So there you have it. This ridiculous 
and irrelevant, this meddling and offensive, this earth-shattering, life-transforming, doom-preventing, future-establishing, God-glorifying good news concerning Jesus Christ. Yes, you might be laughed out of town. You might be canceled out of your club. You might be let go from your job. Friends and family might cut ties with you because of it. But you should never be ashamed of it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this mind-blowing reality of salvation through Jesus Christ. We, we get it. We, we, we see how it, it might be seen as foolish. Maybe we even believed it was foolish at one point in our lives, Lord. But we've seen, like Paul, that it is powerful. Paul knew it was powerful because he saw how it transformed his life and he saw life after life transformed by it. And we look at ourselves and we realize, God, we have no business being here. No business coming before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the mighty God of all creation and being able to survive because we deserve justice. And what we got was salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. May we never be ashamed of Jesus, of the truth of the gospel. And Father, if there are some listening, some here, some watching, who don't yet trust in you, would you call them to yourself? Would you help them reason through all of the holdups they have and come to see that the gospel is the power of God for them, that they might be saved, that they might have meaning, that they might have hope, that they might be forgiven, and they might spend eternity with you in paradise. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.